an unusual car, says Truly Scrumptious. Jeremy replies, Daddy made it. Truly laughs, oh, and it actually goes. Jemima says, it's called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and Grandpa, played by the late, great Lionel Jeffries, proclaims, nasty smelling things, these motor cars. Greetings to you and all the ships at sea. I'm Ted Green, 15-year tech industry veteran, and you're listening to Bolt Bucket, a waggish gab and sometimes rant on technology in our lives. From mankind's past, the present, and our future. Dad, can you fix my cyborg? Tonight's show, the other battery-powered mobile device, the electric car. That was Ian Fleming's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang from 1968 there in the intro. Of course, Mr. Fleming's known for a different body of work. We all know Ian Fleming as the creator and author of the James Bond series. From 1953's Casino Royale to the 1966 book Octopussy. Any film after that book is just a performer-like contest. And it is clear Ian Fleming had a passion for the automobile. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang explains itself. And we all know every Bond film must have a Bond car. And driven, of course, in the most manly of ways. I open with this because if you've lived on this planet, anywhere on this planet, outside walking distance of a subway system, chances are your daily life, not unlike Mr. Caracatus Pot in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, depends on a car. Possibly since about the age of 16. And in fact, I've recently come to learn that if you're growing up in the outbacks of Australia, you can start driving as soon as you can touch the pedals of whatever vehicle your folks own. What with collisions of two or more cars being quite a rare event way out there. In fact, whole nations have had their own distinct love affair with the automobile. We Americans have, until recently, tended to like our cars large and garish, sometimes festooned with stripes or screaming chicken hood decals. A chrome-laden three-row SUV comes to mind as the quintessential American ride, the clear descendant of the bullhorn-wearing Cadillac Eldorado. The aforementioned Australians just want something powerful and with significant road presence for those long drives to, well, look, dude, just go down the road about 4,000 kilometers and Perth is on your left. Europeans, on the other hand, have always enjoyed zippy, reasonably proportioned works of art that just never seem to work very well. Fiat's, Alphas, and Peugeot's, just to name a few. And then there's Japan. Simply put, the smaller, the better. And again, I'm talking about cars here. After what seems like a lifetime of admiring all sorts of technologies and being intimately involved in a few, for me, one look at the internal combustion engine just smacks of one staring at the end of something, rather than the beginning. It's all starting to look a bit steampunk. And this could even be Porsche's latest Boxer 6, the venerable GT3 RS, one of the most advanced gasoline engines on the road today, with significant pedigree. No, it does at least appear this new electric car thing has arrived as the new way to propel humans to and from our daily destinations. Since 1885, when a man named Carl Friedrich Benz became the first to manufacture something resembling what we refer to today as the automobile or the car, many, but not all, of these personal transportation devices were powered by the internal combustion engine, and therefore fueled by gasoline or diesel. But what if I were to tell you it seems the first attempts at the automobile were powered by... Electricity. And to be clear, for this story, I'm not considering hybrids to be electric cars. An electric car runs on electricity only. That's it. Think Tesla or the adorable all-new electric VW e-Golf. If you need to stop for gasoline or diesel at any time, you do not have an electric car. 
Yes, many pre-Friedrich Benz horseless carriage efforts were electric. The year 1823 saw a Scotsman by the name of Robert Anderson invent an electric carriage powered by non-rechargeable batteries. The photos of this car are scarce, particularly since cameras were, at this time, massive and still an item only a studio would have in 1823. But the rumor is Anderson's carriage was, well, with a need to swap out extremely heavy batteries every time a driver's carriage ran out of juice, this invention was not what one would call society-changing. But was Robert Anderson on to something? Over on the continent, Germany to be precise, Professor Ferdinand Porsche had an early interest in electric vehicles while he was an electrical engineer at the Bellagere Electric Company. A small number of what became known as Lonair Porsche, front-wheel drive, and four-wheel drive electric vehicles were in production by 1900. Back here in the U.S., the year was 1890, with a Des Moines, Iowa chemist, one Mr. William Morrison, developing a six-passenger, battery-powered vehicle capable of a top speed of, now wait for it, 14 miles per hour. Whoa! Slow down here, Johnny Lightning. Now, to be fair, this was 1890, so 14 miles per hour, roughly the top speed most high school track stars can run, was significant for the time. It was just a few years later that New York City saw a fleet of no less than 60 electric taxis roaming Gotham, prowling for fares, and no record of a top hat-clad Travis Bickle exists. I checked. Concurrently, the Pope Manufacturing Company became the first large-scale producers of electric cars in the United States. And I have to tell you, for the time, it was a handsome vehicle. No kidding. Google it, go to images, check it out. Not looking like a grade school science project at all. Very, very Model T-like. So at this point, the electric car was off and running. Early electric cars could average 80 miles on a single charge at an average of 12 miles per hour. And again, considering the time period here, 12 miles per hour is pretty good. For the electric vehicle, or as we now call them, the EV, the future seemed clear. Bear in mind, the gasoline-powered car a la Mr. Benz was also being developed along this same timeline. Companies long lost to history, names like White, Autocar, Dort. <laughs> Holy God. That's unbelievable. Honey, I'll pick you up tonight in my brand new Dort. But there was also Gasmobile, which is a pretty cool name. And of course, the truly famous Pierce Arrow. Many, like Studebaker, Alice Chambers, and Oldsmobile, had successful businesses on through to the 1990s in one form or another. In fact, it seems even today, about every three weeks, some investors bragging about how he's going to bring the Studebaker name back to its original glory. Not to be ignored, the late 1800s and early 1900s included steam power as a serious, viable method of car propulsion. In fact, in this time period, the United States had about 60 manufacturers focusing on steam car production alone. The complete auto technology tally as folks rang in the new century, that would have been 1900, looks something like this. 40% of American automobiles were powered by steam, 38% by electricity, and 22% by gasoline. Steam eventually died a slow death. It was a tried-and-true energy source, having proved reliable for powering factories and trains, but in the end, it turned out to be not so very practical for the personal vehicle. The problem... One of the main ones was steam vehicles required very long startup times. I mean, long startup times, sometimes up to 45 minutes in the cold. 
and would need to be constantly refilled with water, limiting their range. And frankly, looking back to this from 2015, do you really want to be in a head-on collision with an industrial-sized boiler? The back and forth of electric versus gasoline versus steam-powered cars continued until a turning point in 1911. The electric automobile starter and gas stations. While many U.S. inventors continued to jump into electric car parts development, in 1911, Charles Kettering invented the first practical electric automobile starter, an accidental bit of brilliance from his original intention to design a hand crank for cash registers. Hmm. Now, prior to this, gas-powered cars could only start by a hand crank. You've probably seen them in movies. You go to the front of the car and you turn it. And many an arm were broken on a Friday night date. And I'm not kidding. But in 1911, orthopedic surgeons were finally getting a break. Broken arms from a gasoline-powered car startup were no more. Just get in, turn the key, and go. With Charles Kettering's technology development, the electric starter, the steam car was definitely dead, and the electric cars were starting to smell a bit past their sell-by date. Concurrently, in the run-up to 1911, both Standard Oil and Gulf began building gas stations. In 1912, a Standard Oil of Louisiana superstation opened in Memphis, Tennessee, featuring, get this, 13 pumps, a ladies' restroom, that was a big thing back then, and a maid who served ice water to waiting customers. Soon, tens, then hundreds of gasoline stations were springing up all across the U.S., while back in Europe, gasoline stations as we know them, with pumps, didn't come into the picture until about 1920, though kerosene stations had been around in Europe for, for some time. But unbelievably, up to 1920, Europeans purchased gasoline exclusively in sealed, returnable containers through a variety of local shops, not unlike the purchase of, say, a bottle of wine or a wheel of brie. And I give you these details on gas stations because electric charging stations never seem to have taken off. If I had a Detroit Electric or a Baker or any of the many electric cars in the early 20th century, how would I charge it? Well, the primary option would be that the dealer would keep it and charge it for me at their own charging location. Cars would either be charged with the batteries on board or the batteries would be removed and charged. But regardless, they have my car. I don't. Batteries were usually swapped for the constantly running electric trucks and taxis. So if we remember back to the beginning of the podcast that Scotsman's major battery inconvenience back in 1823, it's still an issue. It was also possible to have a charging rig set up at one's home, not unlike today. But with the 1911 difference being the option of AC or DC circuitry. Let's talk about the price of these early cars. According to DetroitElectric.org, the price of a Detroit Electric in 1914 was roughly 2650 bucks. But at the same time, you could buy just about two new Model Ts for $600. And Model Ts run on gasoline. Now let's take a look at the early gasoline versus electric battle from another angle. By 1914, about the high watermark of the electric car, a Detroit Electric went... 241 miles on a single charge at roughly 14 miles per hour, hoping that there's a Detroit Electric dealer on the other end of the trip to get a fresh charge so you can get home. Not a likely scenario. The Model T, however, drove roughly 180 miles on a 10-gallon tank, 
with a top speed of 45 miles per hour. All of this with gas stations sprouting up nationwide like crabgrass. These turn-of-the-previous-century electric versus gasoline differences, particularly charging inconvenience and price, are starting to look a little bit familiar. But is there something else lurking in the genetics of the electric car making it inarguably better than the gasoline-powered car? Yes, there is. Road performance. Or more specifically, torque. As an Audi manager once told me, we sell horsepower, but people drive on torque. Let me explain. So what is this torque stuff? Well, torque is the measured ability of a force to turn or twist something, like, say, jeez, hmm, I don't know, a car wheel. If a force is used to begin to spin said car wheel, a torque is made. Now, electric motors give electric cars instant massive torque compared to their internal combustion foe. And this massive torque ability creates strong, smooth acceleration, but in a dangerously quiet manner. And dangerous to pedestrians, that is. But let's forget the pedestrians for a bit. Another way to describe this torque slash horsepower thing is this. The first second you hit the accelerator of your car from a red light, whether you're driving an electric car or a gasoline car, you're experiencing torque. As the car accelerates down the road, it is horsepower that continues your forward motion. Now, I'm oversimplifying things a little bit for illustration purposes, but you get the point. And again, electric cars have gobs of torque, with their horsepower levels not far behind that of a gasoline-powered car. Additionally, most electric cars have less parts and therefore require potentially less and or easier maintenance than their gasoline-sipping foe. Now, obviously, if you're beating the bejesus out of your electric Nissan Leaf, that cost is going to go up. And what cannot be ignored is the media story behind the modern electric car, and that is the much-touted zero use of gasoline or diesel, and therefore zero emissions. There's no getting around this. It's told as fact. An electric car is the obvious chariot of choice for clean, earth-friendly people the world over. Or is it? As of 2015, nearly every electric car manufactured uses lithium-ion batteries to store their propulsion energy. It's sort of like their own gas tank, but of course they're storing electricity, not gasoline. To manufacture these batteries, one needs to mine lithium, a non-renewable but highly recyclable chemical element. And as a side note here, note that in today's day and age, motor oil is also highly recyclable. Now, lithium is also not everywhere like air or sunshine. It is, in fact, located in geographic concentrations. And folks, that's code for some countries have it, some don't. And where have we seen this before? Current geological explorations have South America as having the highest concentration of lithium in the ground. In fact, half of the world's known lithium concentration is in Bolivia. Other nations in the We Have Lithium and You Don't Club include Chile, Australia, and China. The United States has some as well, but the full extent is still being explored. So here we are with another required ground source to move a vehicle. Lithium mines. Have you ever seen what a lithium mine does to its local geography? Google lithium mine and go to the images tab. Yep, scroll down right there. Right th Holy shit! Some of these mines are so large they could be seen from outer space. In fact, a lithium mine near Silver Peak, Nevada is in NASA's photography database. That's how large it is. And for those of you from coal country, this looks familiar, doesn't it? Yep, it's called strip or surface mining. And we've been trying to get away from that for the last 60 years. The organization Friends of the Earth Europe 
has a thing or two to say about lithium batteries. Quote, The extraction of lithium has significant environmental and social impacts, especially due to its water pollution and depletion. In addition, toxic chemicals are required to process lithium. Lithium extraction inevitably harms the soil and also causes air contamination. End quote. Never to be outdone by anyone the world over, recently the United States' own Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Department of Energy undertook a study to look at the environmental impact of lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. The study showed that, quote, the batteries have the highest potential for environmental impacts, including resource depletion, ecological toxicity, and human health. The production and handling of these batteries in exposed form may cause adverse respiratory, pulmonary, and neurological effects to those exposed. End quote. In other words, and sadly, lithium-ion batteries have a highly measurable negative effect on health and the environment. More specifically, this includes automotive-grade lithium-ion batteries, which also contain nickel, cobalt, and aluminum. So once we factor in all of the petroleum-based plastics applied in many, but not all, the current electric cars, we've got one unholy mess on our hands rolling down the streets and at the electric car store. I mourn for humanity, truly. I mean, poor us, we're just trying to move faster than walking pace for the last 150 years, yet everywhere we turn for a solution, we end up in Superfundville. I mean, even the horse had to be eradicated from New York City streets at the turn of the last century because, well, the piles of horseshit and urine poles had the city looking like it was digging out from a brown blizzard. In the summer. That's it, I'm I'm just going to walk everywhere. Now, a big plus for the electric car that's not being chatted about much is, I believe the electric car will be the easiest to adapt to autonomous driving. And that's the rolling living room idea that's being bandied about by companies like Google and even Mercedes. The car just drives itself. You just sit there with a Chili 6, bag of Cheetos and a TV on and enjoy the ride. But autonomous devices and cars are a topic for a whole different episode, so I'm going to podcast that at a later date. Another big plus for the modern electric car is cost. Now remember, in 1914, a Detroit electric cost almost six times that of a Ford Model T gasoline car. So you can make the argument that you would go with a Ford Model T. Not today. In 2015, Nissan's all-electric car, the Leaf, costs an average of $32,000. And here in the States, an electric car buyer can get a tax rebate between $5,000 and $10,000 upon purchase. That adds up to a car far less expensive than many high-quality gasoline cars of the same size. And I'm being serious when I tell you, if you're not driving more than 84 miles in a day and don't lust for supercar performance, the Leaf is quite a vehicle. But there is a hidden truth here, and that is, many of man's timeless technologies have not strayed from their original form. Think about it. The wheel, soccer ball, and frisbee are all better from their inception, but they're still round. The pocket knife is better, but still small, cute, and foldable. The pencil's better, but really just as it was designed way back in 1564. And duct tape will likely remain as is since its 1946 debut, man's repair tool for the ages. So the electric car is back. The electric car is real, and this time very likely to stay with us. But why must we demand the internal combustion engine go away? Why can't that, too, continue to evolve? The bumper sticker coexist comes to mind here. I recall a summer visit to Thomas Edison's home in New Jersey a few years back. In what was his garage stood quite a few proud vintage automobiles. In the four, 
a shiny Ford Model T, and sitting alone, seemingly rotting away in the back right corner, an old Detroit Electric, posing in an almost pitiful manner next to its charging station. Car and charging station covered in dust, history, and time. Is this the fate of the current electric car? Not a chance. Not this time around. No, the current crop of electric cars are onto something as an automobile technology change agent. I could line up 10 people here in my studio and I bet an electric car would fit the needs of nearly half of them. And I'm certain within the next 10 or 20 years, the lithium and viro mess will be history as battery technologies evolve past lithium. But then where will the gasoline engine be 10 or 20 years from now? Surely that will evolve as well. Is a zero emissions gasoline engine possible? Honda of Japan says yes. They've done it in their labs as far back as 1997. In the end, the car or personal transportation device probably comes down to one of my life's memorable moments. Here in New York City, I once met a highly regarded wine taster and reviewer in an odd, unexpected circumstance, and I asked him, what is the best wine this year? He replied, my dear boy, the best wine in the world is simply the one that you like. This thought may also apply to the cars that we buy. And that is the bucket of bolts behind the electric car. If you want to dig deeper into the electric car, I recommend the following. In 2011, director Chris Payne brought his film Revenge of the Electric Car to theaters, and it's available on Netflix as I record this. Chris puts the viewer into the professional lives of current automobile visionaries, including Elon Musk of Tesla, Bob Lutz of GM, and Carlos Goshen of Nissan, as they each show the viewer their vision of the electric car's future. All wrapped in standard filmmaking conventions, 90 minutes of suspense, some intrigue, a dash of romance, seriously, and resolution. I recommend this picture, highly. It's a real eye-opener and the best unscripted look into the life of today's Henry Ford, Mr. Elon Musk. For books, I recommend Levi Tillman's 2015 tome, The Great Race, The Global Quest for the Car of the Future. Now, Tillman digs deep into the automobile's past to uncover hints of the cars of the future. Ultimately, he reveals automotive trends and visions that are really fantastical. Total jets and stuff, and stuff that we may see in the next 50 years. Check it out. Also, I'm not in the product pushing business, but obviously it would have been impossible for me to do this podcast without mentioning certain brands and products from both the past and the present. Having said that, anyone interested in electric car technology should really head to a Tesla store. Obviously, that's easier said than done. If you're in an urban area, Chicago, New York, LA, easy peasy. If you're in middle America, that might be harder to do, but you really should head on over and, and check them out. Go to a Tesla store. Other electric car manufacturers that are maybe easier to, to get to include Nissan, Ford, Toyota, and Volkswagen. I'm telling you, just a simple test drive of an all-electric car is an exercise in Arthur C. Clarke-like Futurama. Just do it. It's awesome. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, please feel free to email me here, ted at boltbucket.net. For more information on me, you can go to www.tedgreen.us. From the foot of Mount Belzoni, good night.